0: word of our Lord from the Gospel of Mark. Then they, the disciples and Jesus, came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. When Jesus had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one could bind him, not even with chains, They had often bound him with shackles and chains. Chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. Always, night and day, he was out in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. And so Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he answered saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also, the man begged Jesus earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. There was a large herd of swine that was feeding near the mountains. So all the demons begged Jesus, saying, send us to the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. And the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000 of them. And the herd "...ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. And so those who fed the the swine fled and told it in the city and in the country. And they all went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion. He was sitting, clothed, and in his right mind, and so they were afraid." Those who saw it told them how it had happened to him when he had been demon-possessed. And they told them about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. So Jesus got into the boat, he, and as he got in, the one who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might go with Jesus But Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends, and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you, how he has had compassion on you. And so the man departed and began to proclaim throughout Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him, and all who heard it marveled. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would bless the reading of Your Word. We pray that You would give us ears to hear it. We pray that You would bless its reading to our lives so that we might ourselves be transformed. We pray all this in Your Son's name. Amen. Because of the nature of redemption, there must be some measure of connection between divinity, God, and humanity, us. Some measure of connection between deity and creation, or else mankind would be eternally lost. That's how... Redemption works. God meets man to meet man's need. Heaven touches earth so that earth might be transformed. God Himself, through His eternal Son, becomes a man so that mankind might be rescued. Likewise, there must be some measure of connection between those of us who are found and those who are lost. Some connection between the saved and the unsaved. The church and the world. Or else, there is no hope for the lost. There is no hope for the unsaved. There is no hope For the world. The burden of the world's salvation was firmly placed on Jesus. As his friends, that burden is now squarely on us. The Scriptures tell us that we are called to join into the work of redemption. Paul the Apostle said it in his second New Testament epistle to the Corinthians. It is as though God were pleading through you to the world so that the world might be saved, so that the world might be reconciled with God. He is... he is entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation, the word of reconciliation, the offer of hope and promise and rescue to the world. God shares His burden with us. Christ, who bore His cross, offers to us a cross to bear. And he says, unless you deny yourselves and take up your cross and follow me, you cannot even be my disciples. The Scriptures tell us that we are, in a sense, called to imitate what God was doing in Christ through the Holy Spirit. We are called to follow in the steps of Jesus of Nazareth. Not not just to learn more about His life, not just to, to, to learn the assurance of His death, burial, and resurrection, but also to follow in His steps where He leads, to go where He goes, because the world's salvation is dependent upon it. Jesus is our model. He is our example. We said a few weeks ago that he is the archetype and the architect of friendship itself. He's the one that defines it. He's the one that shows what it looks like. We know what friendship is because we have an ideal to measure our friendships accordingly. He is our model, our example. Not just of friendship itself though, but a friendship even with those that the Scriptures call the lost, the unsaved, the world. He shows us what true and righteous and redemptive friendship with the world looks like. Not the type of friendship where just anything goes. Not the type of friendship where there is no distinction. But the type of friendship that offers salvation. The type of friendship that offers hope where there is no hope. That offers light where there is nothing but darkness. He shows us what that looks like. You see, redemption is impossible without self-forgetfulness. It is impossible. Impossible without self-giving love. Redemption cannot happen without one who is willing to get beyond himself and care more for his friend than he does for himself. Care more for his neighbor than he does for himself. Care more for even his enemy than he cares for for himself. The question we have to measure our lives according to is have we gotten beyond ourselves? I mean really, have we gotten beyond ourselves? Have I gotten beyond myself? Have you gotten beyond yourself? If we say, yes, I have, then the question that follows is, okay, then where's the evidence of it? How does my life bear evidence to the fact that I've gotten beyond myself and am willing to go where Jesus goes? Does my life show any measure of being willing to befriend those that Jesus befriends? Because the Scriptures tell us that He was a friend of sinners. He was one who sat with the IRS. I I, I probably shouldn't have said those things back to back. It sounds like I'm equating the IRS with a bunch of sinners. Not necessarily. He was the one who sat with the tax collectors. Those that His people, His other friends, those who looked to Him for hope, for Israel, those tax collectors were the ones that they called sellouts and backstabbers. He was the one who insisted that He and His disciples go through a land that no one else would dare touch to meet with a Samaritan woman at the well, a woman who had been through husband after husband and was then living with someone who wasn't even her husband. Lindsey and I tell our kids all the time, and I don't know why it even comes up. But for some reason, this this comes up almost monthly when we're talking to our kids about loving others. We remind them all the time that John Wesley said, "Your neighbor is two people. Your neighbor is the person in front of you and the next person you'll meet. Your neighbors." Not the person that you'll never meet around the world. Your neighbor is not the person that, that has other things going on. Your neighbor is the people before you. The people that you're spending time with. The people that you find yourself next to in the, in the grocery store. The, pers- the person driving car beside you. The person in front of you. And the next person you'll meet. And Jesus says, Love them. Doesn't matter who they are. Doesn't matter what they look like. Doesn't matter how they act. Love them. Because the world's redemption rests upon your willingness to get beyond yourself and care more for them than you do for yourself. More for them than you do for your schedule more for them than you do for your pocketbook more for them than you do for your insistence that you got to get to the gym cuz you get in got to get that workout done and get back home have we gotten beyond ourselves the person in front of me and the next person i meet The Gospel reading this morning tells us that the next person Jesus met after He got into the boat to cross the sea with His disciples was a man that suddenly appeared out of nowhere in front of Him. Not just out of nowhere. The text tells us specifically He came out from among the tombs. Jesus enters into a region called the Decapolis, the ten cities. And the Decapolis was an unclean place. It was a place where no self-respecting Jewish person would have wandered off to or certainly would have spent much time in because it was a place that was filled with swine an unclean animal. It was a place that was filled with tombs and cemeteries and graveyards, a place where the dead were, an unclean place. And this particular spot in the Decapolis, we're not sure if it was the Gadarenes Gadarene, where the Gadarenes lived, or if it was Gerazine, where the Gerizims lived. There's some discrepancy there because both of those are cities within the ten cities of the Decapolis. But Jesus gets out of the boat and he makes his way just a short distance and here comes this man coming out from among the tombs in this place where the swine lived. The text tells us that he fell down to worship Jesus. But he cried out, What have you to do with me, O Son of the Most High God? This man was possessed, we're told, by an unclean spirit. But he was the one before whom Jesus stood. He was the next person that Jesus met. And so Jesus finds this man, or does the man find him? He finds this man who's broken, who's hurting, and who's alone. A man who is able to break the chains that others bound him with to try to control him. A man who's hurting himself and a man who lives alone out among the dead. His life was plagued by possession. He even lost his own identity Like Gollum from the Lord of the Rings, he can't even refer to himself as a self, for he is many. His sins are many, his demons are many. He is legion. And he's frightening. But Jesus went. Jesus didn't have to get into that boat. Jesus didn't have to cross over that sea and go to the Decapolis. But for this man, it seems he did. For this man to be rescued, it seems that Jesus did have to get into that boat. And he did have to crossed that sea, and he did have to then get out of that boat, and he did have to then go out to where this man was. A man who's broken, a man who's hurting, and a man who's alone. Such is the world. Its sins are countless. Its demons are innumerable. The world is intimidating. It is scary. It rightly terrifies us with its cry, I am legion for we are many. I don't know if you realize it or not, but the world is dark. And it's a scary place. But it is a place filled with people who are broken and hurting and alone. And Jesus stands before us and says, Have you gotten beyond yourself? Are you willing to go where I will go? Because if you don't go, I can't. I can't do it without you. I won't do it without you. The world is broken like this man. The world is Split among itself. It is legion, and yet it is alone like this man. And such is our neighbor. Your neighbor. My neighbor. You know, that guy at work. He's broken, he's hurting. And the chances are he's alone. He's got demons that no one else knows about. That lady up the street, she knows what brokenness feels like, she knows what it is to hurt. She knows what it is to be all alone. Those mean kids. Broken, hurting, alone. See, the fields of harvest, they're out there. Out there where it's dirty. And so if our feet aren't getting dirt on them, we're not being faithful to the Lord of the harvest. After all, Jesus washes feet. In fact, He insists that unless He washes our feet, We have no part in Him. But out there in the world, the world that's cold, the world that's dark, the world that is broken and hurting and alone, that's where the Lord of the harvest tells us that we ought to pray for people to go. And the implication is that if we're not willing ourselves to go, then we're praying amiss. Unless I wash your feet, you have no part in me, in what I'm doing. Our feet ought to be dirty. There ought to be times where we get dirt on them, where they are dusty, where they are broken, where they are hurt. We ought to be going where he goes. We sang this morning, I love you, Lord. And we sang that chorus that's tagged on to it. We will wear compassion. We will wear it. And the gates of hell won't stand against us. You might remember from a couple of years ago that I preached a sermon on that passage where Jesus is at Caesarea Philippi and he asks his disciples, who do men say that I am? Well, who do you say that I am? And Jesus declares to Peter when he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus says, the gates of hell will not stand against my church that I am building you might remember me pointing out that gates are a defensive network. Too often the church is comfortable sitting in the church, hanging out as the church, and expecting that the forces of hell are coming toward them. But in Jesus' illustration, it is hell that is waiting for the church To storm its gates. Gates don't do the storming, gates try to withstand the storming. The church is called to be like Jesus, to be his friend, to follow in his example, to go where he goes. But we're too busy. We've got too much going on. The fact is, the church hardly cares or else we'd do more. That's right. We might not say these sorts of things, but in our hearts, we think things like, well, the world will get what it deserves. We even put up snarky little responses on our church marquees, things like, Stop, drop, and roll won't work in hell as though that's some kind of joke. Oh, they'll get what's coming to them. They're making their own bed and I hope they enjoy it. I don't want to be bothered by those people. Good grief, all they'll do is drag me down. We ought to hear the voice of the prophet and the voice of the Hebrews right then. Then fine. Strengthen your weak knees. Because the race that we're called to run very well might lead us on a charge into the gates of hell to rescue those who are perishing. Because those who are dying find very, very few within the church who are willing to care. But that's none of my business what they do with their lives. Now in offering the hope of the Gospel, the church is not called necessarily to be meddling in people's lives. I think Jesus calls us to befriend others before He calls us to meddle. He calls us to earn their trust. Just like with the woman at the well. He doesn't call us to trespass in and start pushing around. But shame on us. Shame on us. If a week goes by without us personally interacting with non-Christians, and I mean personally interacting, not just hello. Shame on us if we can't remember the last time we spent a significant portion of time with non-Christians. Furthermore, shame on us if we can remember only because it happens so rarely. Whether it be opening our homes, having folks over for dinner to watch the big game. Whether it be grabbing coffee after work. There are those who are broken, who are hurting, and who are alone. And Jesus is looking for some of His friends who are willing to introduce Him to them. And that can't happen until we become their friends. Bill, I know it's one of your favorite movies, and I know you watch it every single time around Christmas time. You know where I'm going now. The Grinch. On his busy schedule, he called it. All the reasons why he couldn't become friends with those others. On his busy schedule, or schedule, mispronounced. He says, Solve world hunger, tell no one. And shame on the church for having the solution to man's deep hunger and telling hardly anyone. Or assuming that if we throw some words up on a sign that that's telling them. We've got the greatest news the world has ever heard. We should be sharing it more. But I can't do that. I'm not a preacher. I I don't know how to share the gospel with people. You're asking me to do too much. I'm I'm an introvert. I say we ought to make a deal then. You befriend them. And I'll do my part as well. And let's get them to church. And then I'll share the gospel with them. I think it's a pretty fair deal. It's intimidating to open up your life to someone else and tell them about how you love a man named Jesus from Nazareth because He put your life back together and He forgave you of all your sins and He has been cleansing you and healing your broken heart. That's an intimidating thing to do. It might be less intimidating to say, hey, we ought to spend some time together. I mentioned last week, we closed with the story, part of the story from the third book of the Lord of the Rings, and I said that we can't bear our friend's burdens, but we can sure bear our friend. We may not be able to bear Jesus' burden, our greatest friend but we can sure bear him. And that's what the gospel calls us to do. That is what being called to the ministry of reconciliation demands of our lives. Bear Jesus to the world. Take that friend upon yourself and take him to the world. Jesus told his disciples on his very last night before the cross he said if you want to be my disciples you want to be my friends then do my will and his will is that none would perish but that all would come to life everlasting. His will is as you are going out into the world, make disciples. His will is get in the boat. We're going to the other side, a dark side. His will is get out of the boat because there are people who are broken, who are hurting. And who are alone. His will is light your candles, boys. We're going into complete darkness, and it's going to be terrifying. But he looks at us, the people who are before him, and he says, Will you come? We've got hope to share where there is no hope. We've got peace to share where there is no peace. We've got healing to share where there's nothing but disease and pain. Let us bear Christ to His world. For it remains hopeless without that. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you...